Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me are Kendra Maurer and Morgana. And tonight we are welcoming our guest, Andy Mercer. He's an author, a Jungian psychotherapist, and he's interested in all things paranormal and magical. And he's written some really interesting books, including the one that just came out, the title of which I just lost. But the Morgana's going to hold it up for me. Actually, <laughs> the Wicked Shall Decay. Morgana has my copy, which is why it's not sitting right here. So, Andy, welcome. Hello. Hi, how are we doing? You we look, are good. <laughs> you look very, uh, very awake and aware for it being late at night. So <laughs> thank you for coming to see us, even though the time difference is somewhat monumental and Annoying. Finally, it's about 11 o'clock here, which is still early for me. I'm usually up to much later than that. So. Oh, all right. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. So um, Morgana wanted to start out. She has some thoughts and questions. Okay. Um, so I read The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts at like age 17 because my mom is a wonderful, wonderful example and is like, here, read really creepy things. Um, <laughs> at which point, you know, I managed to scare myself until three in the morning, but it left me with a deep distrust of mediumship and some deep distrust of spiritualism because the whole point of the book is that the spirits that were being channeled by people seemed to know a great deal about things but when you actually went through and checked on it it was some things you could very slightly confirm and some things you couldn't and one of the theories around that is the author came to the conclusion that they're just lying to you and i thought okay that might be definitely part of it but then i read some young and ran into the theory of the collective unconscious. And I am I am not a psychotherapist, so <laughs> I don't know nearly enough. But one of the things I've been wondering ever since then is this possibly that mediums are tapping into and accessing some form of collective unconsciousness or tapping into a form of psychicness. Mm -hmm. Or is this just ghosts like to lie to people or some bizarre combination thereof? Um, well, I think the last version, the bizarre combination of those various things all come into it. It's a difficult one. because one of the things I've kind of theorized about in the past. Now, it wouldn't really fit in with Jung's own ideas about the mediumship comes from the collective unconscious because it's more of a, an idea of a structure of ideas, a structure of how things can work, rather than being things in it, if you like. But that would be a more straightforward Jungian approach. I think you can 
take it a little bit further and suggest possibilities of fragments of knowledge or information that might be available, that might be accessible. But when it comes to people like mediumship, my own experiences of them, a little bit like what Mr. Young said, that you're probably talking more psychic than anything else, that maybe the information is coming from you as a person, that the medium is picking that information up. And it comes through in the way they've been trained to give it to you, i.e. a spirit is giving them the information. In actual fact, it's been read more directly from your own thinking. My personal experiences, and I've actually done a quite a bit of study on mediumship, and we do, I don't know how many mediumship sessions with, with groups, you know, with one medium on stage. And they usually nearly always tell them things that, A, the person who's having the reading already knows, but they may have picked up psychically, or B, it's stuff that they can't confirm unless they go out and check. And, of course, they don't come back and tell the medium or the group that it was correct or not. So I'm... Again, I, a skeptic is probably the, the best way I'll put it of general person reading mediumship. Although I've seen some interesting examples of mediumship, I can talk about things like ghost investigations where people have picked up stuff about the place, if you like, and they may have channeled it as if it's a person telling them it, or they describe a location in in very clear terms that they couldn't possibly like how it used to look before if you like no that was previously they couldn't have known themselves yet somehow seemed to fit in with what is known about the location in fact i can think of one person who's done that very very accurately and that would be me (laughs) (laughs) many years ago i used to be quite involved in ghost investigations for a public company the members of the would come along to the event and i was part of the investigation team that sort of led the public around and i'd often see a place how it used to look if it was might have been like, half ruined or it'd been redesigned or even rebuilt completely and i used to get a good sense of how it used to look we'll be able to describe quite detailed what i was seeing and often we have a historian who knew the location quite well and was often able to confirm now to me it's kind of atmosphere energy feel if you like of the place was the source of the information I think one, you can talk about collective unconscious in the sense of what could possibly be the source of things like past life memories, that it's potentially possible that a person that is not experienced their own past life, in, you know, we can do that, past life, hypnosis, that kind of stuff, that they are tapping into old memory of the past, possibly of the location they're in, or just as a field of memory for what they're tapping into, that could potentially be stored within a collective unconscious. Again, that's a little bit still outside of what Jung would have said, but it's a possibility that you could take the theory to that point, that it does work and connect in that way. I don't know if I've answered your question, but you kind of moved on a bit there. But, but. No, this is great. Keep going. Because nope. this is interesting and this is stuff that I think about, but again, not an expert at all in that particular field. So I tend to go, oh, that would be cool if, and then go, I don't know if that's valid at all. We should ask somebody who does know. Well, it's always worth exploring your own ideas. If it starts to feel like it's working for you, makes sense, then always stick with it. What did yeah. you find particularly that was uncomfortable then what you were reading? I'm not familiar with the actual book you mentioned. But what um, it's really, it's a really good book that you you should read. What I found really uncomfortable was that this was a person who went in skeptical to study this sort of thing, and the medium group, the group of mediums, mediums and spiritualists who he was working with, um, ended up channeling a woman who did the whole we knew each other in a past life thing 
and she sort of became a romantic interest for him, the spirit. And it actually ended up, he ended up breaking up with his long-term girlfriend at the time and getting very, very into trying to find out if this woman was real, if they really had been lovers in a past life. And he would find just enough evidence when he first started researching to be like, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then when he finally, he went to, she was from Greece, supposedly. And he actually went to Greece. 18th century Greece. Yeah. To find out if she was real and he never could. And it really messed him up. And there were strange, just spirits being like, well, if you don't believe it, if, you know, people would become skeptical and the spirits would be like, well, those people are negative people now who are going to hold you back. And it began to feel very cultish to me. Mm. And cults kind of make me back away slowly, you know, says the person with a paranormal podcast, because I'm any better <laughs> than... <laughs> Um, and it just, it was, it distressed me to see the author going through, you know, emotional disruption and, and pain and like despair and all of these things. And I don't at all think the, the mediums who were doing these things were meaning for this to happen. And I don't mm. think they're conscious of what they're saying when they're in trance states necessarily. Mm. And I don't want to think that, I don't think they're bad people. But I don't know what the control spirits are, and I don't like them, and I don't like the idea of having an external thing driving people around. Like, it's, it's also like, why possession's not, not okay. It's like the people willingly sacrifice their agency. To yes. Them. And that's what I found. And any time that they showed dissent, they were removed. Yes, that I did not like that. Yeah. I think it would come to the obvious the point, do you accept that these things are discrete individual entities in their own right, separate completely to anybody else? Oh, yeah, they exist independently of that guy. I mean, from what you're saying, I think you need to see me in my professional capacity, shall we say that. So a lot more like someone who's quite disturbed in terms of even terms of voices. And if that, again, if you want to go on the line with the idea of if they're connecting for the person's own information within the journey, and if they themselves are very disturbed, then of course a medium connecting to that person's psychic mind, if you like, is also going to pick up the same disturbance. And of course, if they believe these things are communicated in that way, they're going to give that impression. So it starts, the narrative starts running itself. You know, you're looking almost about demonic possession here. Now, it's worth remembering, demonic possession was our old explanation for psychosis, effectively. I mean, you know, I obviously call the paranormal, but I am very much of the mind there's no such thing as demonic possession at all. It is all psychosis in one form or another, whether it's mental breakdown or something as simple as an epileptic fit, for example. We had no idea what caused those in the past. And someone rolling around on the floor, apparently speaking strange language, foaming at the mouth, all that kind of stuff fits totally with the idea of a demonic possession. But we know it's neurological. And I do think that all demonic possession examples are explainable psychologically, even if it's a belief system that the person's then generating it themselves. But again, with the mediumship stuff, it does come to the question, do you believe that these things exist independently, that there is some kind of spirit realm that they're communicating from? And I'm not convinced of that at all. Again, it isn't just a, a 
quite out of the air idea. It's something I've looked at for many, many years, obviously being a psychotherapist, but even before then, trying to understand what I was experiencing, what I was aware of with other people I was working with, you know, mediums. I don't think any of them meant anything maliciously, and I do think they tended to give what was the standard explanation of where this information is coming from. It's what they've been taught, you know. Most of these mediums would have sat in stuff and they've learnt they were getting stuff, no idea what it was, but told it was X. And they said, okay, yeah, I'll go with that, because that's what you're telling me, because it's the predominant description, for like. It's the sort of Victorian kind of parlour seance explanation for spirits, which is the one that even now, 100 plus years later, is still the predominant way these things are seen. I mean, it, a bit, it kind of parallels to me a bit like the only explanation for UFOs is not of old spaceships from other planets. That is the predominant belief system of what UFOs are. And equally with ghosts, spirits, whatever you want to call them, the predominant belief system is they are discrete entities of their, in their own right that are coming back to the from whatever plane they've come from. And I think the, these ideas need to be challenged. And I think that's one of the things that you guys do in your podcast generally, is challenging more standard ideas. So, yeah, my concern would be more for his mental state than anything else. It was yeah, bad. and that, yeah. that was what bothered me. I was like, no, go to a therapist. Go to a real therapist, please, dear no, God. I, I understand that you're getting obsessed, and this is why I, I guess I got very worried for this author. Well, and <laughs> very quickly. And he's dead, so, you know. And he died under somewhat questionable circumstances. You know, he may have committed suicide. He may have accidentally fallen off the cliff. His um, mother believed that the entities he was speaking with through the medium were were demons. She she was she was a fundamentalist Christian, um, and she believed they were demons and that they killed him on purpose. And you know, kind of doesn't matter. He's still dead. You know, and. And it and it is under tragic circumstances, no matter how you parse it out in your head, you know, no matter how you explain it, the man died and he was really unhappy before he died. He never really seemed to get over the experience. He was a he was a very young reporter uh, before he wrote this book. And he was kind of a hotshot reporter in Canada. Um, he was doing investigative reports. He was, you know, he was sort of like Bob Woodward only in Canada and much younger than Bob Woodward was when he started out. Although he was, he was hot shot too, cause he was young and it, he really changed after he started studying the, um, the medium and it's interesting the medium that he started um investigating was an amateur she hadn't really been trained in the spiritualist um tradition but as you say that it's still there but she wasn't trained by another spiritualist medium so some of the protocols that i recognize <clears throat> from the spiritualist tradition weren't there you know the spiritualists kind of couch it in a christian sort of white light protect yourself only let the good entities in all of that 
um, which is a magical practitioner I recognize as, okay, you're casting a circle and you're casting out the bad things and, and you're calling the, the, the quarters to guard you that, okay, yeah, I know what that is. Um, you're just couching it in different terms. And, but they didn't do that. She pretty much just relaxed and there was an amateur hypnotist, which I have issues with amateur hypnotists most of the time. Um, and uh, he relaxed her. And she started doing this, this hypnotism thing, not to become a medium. It was by accident. He was helping her. She had leukemia and he was helping her relax so that the medication would work more effectively. So it actually made sense. And this was not at all planned, but then these, these entities started speaking through her while she was in a relaxed state. And instead of marching to a, a licensed hypnotherapist and a psychotherapist, they decided to talk to these entities. And that's when this whole group formed around her as they started speaking. And there was a lot of manipulation happening with these entities. They were very, very manipulative with her. And then after he showed up, they, they were, they were really into manipulating him. And uh, it was really, really disturbing to read. Uh, the author's name is Joe Fisher. No relation. Um, <laughs> but uh I do feel a little bit of kinship with him because we share a name and it's kind of like y'all went after my boy. That's not cool, you know? Um, but uh, it's a really good book. You should, you should read mm -hmm. it and uh, check it out. I think your take on it would be very interesting. Yeah. I will do. I'm making a note of the type of the, the author. It does occur to me that early on in Jung's professional work, he did actually observe a medium who was doing essentially the same kind of thing. She wasn't, she was quite young. She wasn't trained in any form and multiple voices did seem to emerge from her, but he was quite convinced. And I'd say the same, that it was subpersonalities of her own, that were part of her and they were manifest in this way. I mean, again, we'd recognize this more, you know, in the medical field as being multiple personality disorder or dissociative personality disorder, as it's called now, where you've got a splitting of personality, which really is just one, there's usually multiples that are emerging because of traumatic experiences. It's a way of dealing with them, internalizing and burying them and putting them to one side. It's why shutting that part of oneself off, but they can continually emerge. And in some more extreme cases, they emerge as subpersonalities to start to come through. And you're dealing then with somebody who's clearly troubled to have that happen in the first place. Because if it's happened by chance, it is always, I mean, this is modern thinking in terms of psychotherapy, but it's always from experience. We used to think of certain disorders would emerge, maybe you inherited them or born with them. It's not the case as far as we can tell. They are as a result of some form of trauma, some form of traumatic experience. And, you know, we can take it down the kind of almost the John Keel road, that you have to have these kind of experiences to awaken a certain part of the mind anyway. So you become more connected with unusual stuff. But whether it's coming from you or it's something that's external to you or somewhere between the two, as I often think these things can be, it's hard to say. But I think from what you're saying, this was what she was experiencing and was manifesting as multiple voices. Again, if there's manipulation and control going on as well, those subpersonalities will be like that because they're part of this dynamic of how you're dealing with these extreme circumstances. And whatever could have driven it, it doesn't have to be something 
to the rest of us, particularly big or massive. I mean, I can't speak of client work, obviously, but, you know, I've had people who've had what most people think was perhaps nothing much, but for them, it was huge, whatever it might have been. And similarly, people have come with problems that aren't related to the major thing that you hear about in the life of experience. And you think, well, you know, that's big, but you've dealt with it. You've dealt with the problem. But this is something else that's going on. So you can never be sure. It doesn't have to be something that's obviously huge and dramatic. For it to have a dramatic effect, it could be something fairly minor, but it can cause the process of splitting to begin. And once that kind of process begins, it tends to continue. And that can be a problem. Well, and that's that's what you know, happened. It started with one control. And then as this went on, more and more control spirits arose and were assigned to different members of the group as their spirit guides. And of course, I'm reading it going, oh, uh, dissociative personality disorder. Hey, 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 read about it. Hey, (laughs) no, I never read about it. Um, you know, when it's interesting when you talk about trauma, just about every experiencer I know, and I, I'm learning that I know a lot of them, because we tend to come together in in find each other somehow. We must have a smell or something. Like, ah, it's one of us, you know. Electromagnetic vibe. There's yes. a yeah. that talks about that the heart has a, a magnetic field, it's about 20 feet wide. It gives out, but you can actually connect into, you feel it, you sense it. So the person can be 10, 15, 20 feet away, and you still get that connection. So no, it's possibly quite real. It's called, oh, Institute of Heart Math, other people have done a lot of research into this, but they are saying that the, the field exists, there's no doubt about it, it's an energy field around us. What exactly does that work is a matter of conjecture. But no, you absolutely, there really is a connection that you get with that kind of person. And See, now I'm just thinking it's of the goo. It's yeah, it's, it's goo. Kendra's goo. Mm-hmm. It's Kendra's goo. Tell, explain goo. You might need to explain that, yes. <laughs> it's it's basically just that we're all we each have our own little self-contained field that is our energy and is affected by everything that's happened in our lives. So yeah. Each each event in each traumatic event leaves a mark in your in your energy field, and other people who have experienced that have kind of advanced my theory a little bit can recognize that energy. And you you I, I wonder how many coincidental stories happen because this what you're picking up from them is a very similar feeling of what mm. you've been through, and you can. It steers your your conversation in the direction of shared experiences. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, certainly, I mean, I can I speak of clients here. I mean, after many years of working, I some some walks in the door. You can tell it's a trauma because you can just tell them body language or speak or they move. But there is still definitely an intuitive level to that. There's no doubt about it. I'm supervising them training at the moment, and um, they've got that knack. They can see it. They can sense it. There's that very much changes quite early still. But they can sense there's something there with that person. I've said it multiple times when people she's been working with in training. There is something there. You do feel it as well as you know it intellectually, for like as, as experienced therapist. You feel it as well. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like for myself, I lost my dad when I was eight, and I've been. It's like there are some women that I know that I'm like. Once I find out that their father did die when they were young, I'm like I 
get why I understand you on a very basic level. So for me, that's actually, that it's kind of served me in that respect. And in my case, I was raised by somebody who she has mental illnesses, multiple ones, probably. Um, and she was violent and physically violent, emotionally violent, and nobody stopped her. Um, in large part because where I grew up and when I grew up, nobody really realized that she was that much of a mess. And of course she was treated horribly by, she was traumatized in childhood by her father who was also mentally ill and violent. Um, and so, yeah, I can find the traumatized person in a room so fast. <laughs> it's, oh yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. And just about, like I said, just about every experiencer or psychic person I have known, there is some trauma. And as you say, sometimes it's a little thing, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't consider myself that abused because I knew kids who had withstood much worse. And it took my, my first really good therapist to go, Hey, um, it's not a contest here. <laughs> it's uh, comparing and contrasting abuse and trauma. Trauma is trauma. You're traumatized. It's it's that just you, it's you're not less traumatized. You're not more traumatized. It's just you're traumatized. Mm -hmm. Let it go. Accept, and then you can start healing from it. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I, I loved her. She was she was very plain spoken and very calm. She's she's very grandmotherly. And she looked at me while I was telling her, you know, some of the stuff that had happened in my adulthood from my parents. And she just looked at me and very sweetly said, your parents really threw you under the bus, didn't they? And I I, I started going up. Oh, but no, no, uh, uh, no, I, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And she said, you just never looked at it before. But you were ready to look at it. So now let's move along. <laughs> I loved her. She was great. <laughs> but it was very funny because until then, it, you know, I knew people who had it worse. So you're absolutely right about trauma. Um, and what some people think of as something very small doesn't yeah. matter. No, I always say that to like any client of mine. And everyone's experience is individual and unique to themselves. And you can't say one was worse than the other because you don't know, really. It's how it affects you. It's as much how you deal with it as what happens to you that makes a difference as well. To say some people go through what you might call dramatic trauma, in quotations, and come out of it reasonably okay because they've dealt with it themselves. Sometimes it can be a lesser thing that has the greater impact. Even amongst bigger events, one smaller thing can be just enough. It's too much. Yeah. Certainly, but yeah, I mean, there is absolutely something to the whole idea that it takes it's something opens up. I think when you have a sort of traumatic experiences, you become aware of your thinking changes. I think often what it can be is the brain something has to pretty rewire itself through an experience, and these almost channels open, if you like, not quite fully connected up, so that other 
experiences become part of that. You become aware of other things around. I mean, a classic example was an old friend of mine many years ago. I used to run an investigation team, and this guy contacted me, wanted to get involved in investigating ghosts. Now, he used to be a salesman. He used to travel around the country in the UK selling. It was all technical equipment he was involved in, selling. it was quite high-level stuff. And he had no interest in ghosts, supernatural, paranormal, nothing. Not a, not a child of interest. Until he had a car crash, major head trauma. Spent about two months in hospital, came out basically psychic and was absolutely freaked out. He was frightened of life. I mean, he lived in quite an old house, started hearing noises that he'd never noticed before. Things are moving around. He was suddenly aware of people's thoughts, what clients were saying. He was working, he basically gave up and did something different because he couldn't handle it. But there was nothing until the head trauma. And he said, literally, he came out of that trauma psychic. There's only way you can explain it. And that's why he got involved with us, because he just know more about ghosts through his own haunted house. But he said he'd been living there for years before it happened and never noticed anything. Mm-mm, him or his mm-hmm. wife never noticed a damn thing. And then suddenly, whoa, this is weird. This stuff's happening. Now, the question was for me, was it always happening and he never noticed it before? Or was it his change of brain state meant it was happening? Not that he was waking up, but he was causing things to occur. <clears throat> suddenly we're at a different level of reality, if you like, as if some of his mind was powered up and these things were responding in accordance to how his mind was now working, rather than the ghost coming and say, oh, he can see us now, we're going to annoy him. You know, <laughs> that's the way of thinking of it. There's something about his interacting with the environment around him was changed and things were occurring. So absolutely not creating them, was happening and again talking about the ghost investigation with the company if you had a group of 20 people paying for people who wanted to be there who were flat and dull and boring weren't that interested it would be a rubbish night nothing would happen if they're really up for it really involved and engaged then things would happen you can see it you know and again it's not them making it up or throwing stones or anything like that but the actual environment was responding to their enthusiasm interest it had to be someone that had something to begin with in the first place it's like it's latent it's sitting there but it's energized by our presence by what we were doing there so yeah that is the case Keel talks about that I wonder sometimes, too, if surviving trauma kicks off different survival tactics, and if that isn't your brain adjusting to survival, and suddenly the things that you didn't notice before, you notice them because now, for whatever reason, your brain filters that as important. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's all part of the whole, it fits under the fight or flight scenario. You're more aware yeah. of your environment. Exactly. You're more yeah. dangerous, so you become more aware. Yeah. When, kind of almost quoting Keeler, but it's like you become aware of these things around you, but they become aware that you've become aware. Yes. Become more active. I think there is definitely interaction starts to occur. Yeah. I think I think there's most certainly an interaction that occurs. And I don't know if it's purely psychic or if it's purely psychic and also an electrical change because we're electrical beings. And especially if you're talking about, you know, traumatic brain injury, that recovering from that creates new neural pathways and different parts of your brain light up and your electrical signal has changed. I suspect, you know, they've put people in MRI machines and had them pray and meditate and do all these different things. And it engages different chunks of your brain. And I think when you 
are in the right frame of mind and you're in the right place and you're putting out and it sounds so new age, but you're literally putting out a different energy signature an electrical signature. And I think that is something that things respond to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can take it down a more scientific route anyway, because certainly any kind of traumatic brain injury, particularly, the brain rewires itself. It yes. finds new channels. But by doing so, is it then lighting up parts that have been, well, not dormant, because we know the brain does an awful lot and we don't know what's going on with it. I mean, people talk about only using a certain percentage of the brain. It's not true. We use most of it. Just there's big parts we don't know what the hell it's doing. <laughs> those receptacles are then suddenly activated by that. So you combine that with certainly a particular traumatic experience, you will still have the fight or flight, the alarm system, anxiety levels are raised, and they stay raised for years. Oh, yeah, yeah. We know. <laughs> Funny enough, anxiety is the number one problem I deal with by a country mile these days. It's a very, very popular issue, which I'm glad people do deal with and I don't try and live through anymore. But yeah, you you know, it takes a second for that system to fire up. It can take years for it to calm down, if ever. You know, you can get to that point and often have people here who've been in fight or flight anxiety mode for decades in their life, not even realised. And suddenly it's just got too much I want to deal with it. But they've been in that state for so long that it's just normalised. But yet it's still happening and it's still causing that response system to be more alert and awake and alive. So, I mean, there's definitely something to this. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, the the it's it's a different brain state. It's a different consciousness state when you pray or when you... Um, meditate or when you shamanic journey and there's the tradition among shamanic people that the shaman undergoes a a trial or they sometimes it doesn't happen in a ritual setting sometimes they're injured as a child or they have a, a great fever when they're a child and all of those things can change your your body and your brain your brain state um and the way your your electrical energy works i think that we're talking all about the same kind of things but you know humans love to put stuff in boxes and yeah. and have them categorized and you know all put together so i think it's really interesting that trauma is sort of a universal experience um for for I don't know, experiencers. It's a, it's a different. And people. And it's just, it's, it's a, and people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, then you have people who experience trauma and they never have a psychic experience yeah. or they seldom have one. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That certainly is the case. But though from, again, what we're talking about here, it doesn't happen the other way around. You, know, you tend to, Almost, you need to have the experience. I mean, there's a good friend of ours who's never seen had an experience in his life. I don't know if he's ever tried to experience either. Good old Steve Ward. He says he's never seen anything, never experienced anything. Maybe he needs a big bonk on the head or something. <laughs> we'll, we'll shove him off a bridge. <laughs> Not a very high bridge, but a, a bridge. Get his system to work. Now, again, all the people I've known over the years, if you try to sit and talk with them a bit in terms of sort of psychic and that kind of thing, there's always something that's happened. There's always a story that emerges of some kind of experience, whether it's a one-off situation, you know, like a, like a road accident, as I said, with a guy I used to know, or it's been a situation of abuse of some kind, or, you know, just felt outside of everything and felt real alone and not knowing why, and then discover things later on that, you know, things that they were adopted as a kid and didn't know, and that kind of stuff. That leads to that. I think it 
drawn to a more the more interesting sort of life if you've had that experience anyway. But again, I think it comes back to the idea of somehow it's a two-way thing that these things, if you like, become aware that you're aware and then they are also interested to see why you're aware of what you know and how you're working. But I like to be careful there because it always starts to suggest that we're talking about something that's independent to us completely. And I don't think this stuff is. I think we play a huge part of it. It, whether it originates with us or exists parallel with us but is still part of us is the question, of course. I don't think we can have an answer to that one. I don't think there's an answer to that one, but a lot of people do have theories and ideas about what's going on there, whether it's alternate realities, panel dimensions, or beings that are out of sync with us. They're here with us now, but they're slightly out of sync and come back into sync and you can see and experience them. Manga by again. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I try not to come to a conclusion as to what it is. I just like to investigate what, I mean, what I've seen and heard and listened to rather than try and create a, an explanation for them. My kind of what we'd call a phenomenological approach where you look at the phenomenon in itself and see what you can learn from that rather than epistemological where you come with a theory first and then try and prove your theory. Because that's how modern science tends to work that way around, unfortunately. And the things that don't fit the theory get chucked out the window, which is why we have this whole field of paranormal because it doesn't fit those conventional theories about how the reality is supposed to work. Yeah. I tend to look at it as a consciousness-based thing. Um, we're not real sure, you know, does the brain create consciousness? Is it a, does it, um, does it, uh, it's like a radio tuning into consciousness. Is that what, how it works? Is it creating it? Is consciousness there and our brains give it a place to live? Are we all part of a larger consciousness? Um, that's where that whole collective unconscious comes in. And, you know, is the earth itself conscious? Was, you know, Dr. Lilly correct? Um, there's so many possibilities. As you say, the, the, what Keel called the ultra terrestrials, what, is now by a lot of paranormal investigators called the other, which is a much more generic sort of term. And, and I kind of like it for that reason. If you, it's phenomenal, phenomenological, it's not saying what it is. It's saying it's there and we have to give it a name mm -hmm. and we don't think it's completely us. So we're going to call it the other, which I thought that, that makes some sense. Mm. Um, but is that a different form of consciousness? Is it, is it, humans who have died and are non not embodied that's one of the things i thought of as a kid you know was it are are these you know entities that i see are they just non embodied creatures are they ex humans are humans non embodied until we're embodied and then you know we shuffle it off and then we you know what is what is all of that and there's so many things it could be but i do think consciousness is part of it mm. um and i do think ann streber is correct in that it has something to do with death but i don't know if it is there's something in there but i don't know what it is so i i, I tend to see it as consciousness doing things 
I mean, that's the biggest question. We still don't know what consciousness actually is, how it comes about, what causes it. And conversely, if when the brain shuts down, does it go completely disappear? Does it become part of something else? Is it reborn, reincarnated, or does it disappear into the ether and never be heard of again? Or is it a ghost? Who knows? You know, that is what <laughs> fundamental. That is a fundamental question. We don't bloody, all four of us sit here, all the existing, we're all conscious. What is it? Hmm. Uh, Hmm. You know, I think one of the problems we try to conceptualize consciousness is if it's a thing. I think it's just it's activity. It is the nature of the mind is the activity is consciousness. But how it comes about, what makes us what we are is reflective self-awareness, which is what makes us almost unique. I think probably the dolphins have that too, but most of our animals do not have reflective self-awareness. They're self-aware higher order creatures, but not the same way that we are, not the level of complexity. I mean, again, chimpanzees show some form of it, but nothing like as complex as we do. You know, why, again, you can ask the question, why is it this one particular breed of mammal on this planet has developed this brain incredibly quickly, this frontal lobe section has developed incredibly fast, and it's massive than any other animal. Why has that happened? You know, you have the uh, ancient astronaut theorists saying, oh, we came down, that didn't pick up your brain about, well, maybe not, but Something's happened. We know there's theories about certain come form of cosmic rays have, have affected us, have caused this growth, this massive speed of growth of the, some, of the frontal cortex. But something's caused it. Whether it is just an evolutionary jump, which again looks like can occur in species, and maybe that's part of it. I mean, it's re worth remembering that Homo sapiens sapiens that we are is one of a number of humanoid creatures that were growing and developing and it's just that we happen to be the most successful by a long way that all the others we worked them out basically we defeated them we we spread faster and Maybe we were just yeah i mean there are possible neanderthals around still a few possible examples of humans are more neanderthal than homo sapiens sapien but again there's not many of them the vast majority are us so somewhere along the line we develop this consciousness and we still have no real definitive explanation lots of theories but all theories have holes in them it's sort of to do with quantum level mechanics going on in the brain that's causing it there's certain theories around that which i find quite interesting but we don't know so you know where you say consciousness survives death when you don't even know what consciousness is you can't say where it's surviving death you don't know what you're talking about you, well, you can because you don't know what it is you can make it be anything you want mm. so you can totally say that you're just arguing in bad faith <laughs> difficult to try and narrow down the parameters when you can't actually you've got one variable you can't actually find an answer exactly it doesn't work but it's this is why we invent religion and oh, yeah. because I, I yeah I wonder though <clears throat> about you have to bear with me for a minute I wonder though about um, what I call the goodbye dream after after someone passes, there's always someone that gets a very vivid dream of a conversation. And it's always someone, it's like someone they haven't quite finished saying goodbye to. But I wonder about that, if that's like the final exhale of the conscious. Very possibly. I mean, you can talk about crisis apparitions, of course, as well. If people do see someone who's just recently died and didn't know they were even dead, you know. Yeah, well. It, may pass away last night. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, the reason I bring this up is an old friend of mine uh, passed away last week. And another friend posted 
that she had had the very vivid dream and it was it was it was perfect for him it was perfect for her it was it was really neat but i can't remember if she was aware of his passing prior to that but with it, it was within a day that he had had that that she had had that dream of him so I, go ahead and and that happened to me with dave mhm um i I knew Dave had cancer. I knew it was a very rare cancer. Um, he's very young. Uh, he's He was younger than me. He was in his early 40s. And uh, Dave, I, I had talked to him on the phone the week before. We had talked. And... Uh, you know, he kind of said, well, I'm, I'm doing as well as I can. He didn't say it's really soon. I, I think he knew, but he didn't say. And uh, he couldn't talk with my husband, who was also good friends with him because my husband was in the hospital at the time. And I said, but I'll, I'll give him your message. And then Zach came home from the hospital um, within that week. And, uh, I told him that, you know, Dave's, Dave's about to pass. And, and he was, he was sad and he said, well, I'll call him. And right before the alarm went off this one morning, I dreamed that Dave was sitting on the couch with me. He was a Star Trek fan and he had, he had a very monotone voice and he mm -hmm. was one of those socially awkward nerdy people Sweet who talked Canada. like this oh my god he was he was a he was a deer but he always talked like this and he was tenacious if he wanted to tell you what happened in star trek the next generation you could change the conversation you could you could just derail him you could you could move it around there'd be a whole group of people and nobody wanted to hear what Captain Picard said, but he was goddamn well going to tell you yeah. what Captain Picard said. <laughs> and so that became one of his taglines that, okay. you know, we would all say, and Dave was there, and then we'd all say together, and Captain Picard said, because that was always in this, whatever happened, he always told us what Captain Picard said. So in the dream, he's talking to me, and he told me, and Captain Picard said, and then he went on and he said, and Captain Picard said it was time to say goodbye. And then the alarm went off and I woke up and I said to Zach, I said, I just dreamed about Dave. He said, what was he doing? He said, I started to laugh. I said, he was telling me what Captain Picard said. He was like, well, you know, it was Dave then. And then I he went to Facebook and that's when Zach saw, Oh my God, Dave died last night. And I was like, he came to tell me it was time to say goodbye because what captain Picard said was it's time to say goodbye. And <laughs> I was blown away. And so of course I called Kendra because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Kendra, Kendra. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like Dave's gone. And, and she was like, I saw it on Facebook and I was like, but, 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 and then I said, yeah. and she, she said, what did he tell you? I said, Captain Picard said it was time to say goodbye. <laughs> well, you know, it was Dave. Yep. That was Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that was really, really weird. 
I had never had that happen. It had always been more subtle things before. Sure. It's it's neat when it happens because you wake yeah. up feeling them. Yes. I think I did it with my nephew. Well, I think one of the possibilities is if you forget the whole notion of time and space distance from each other and do the idea of what we talk about quantum entanglement where they can potentially be connected no matter how far apart they might have been. If you've got a connection with a person, they die. It's like an explosion of energy that goes outward and then you pick up the explosion and your brain turns into something that makes sense, that is explainable. I mean, I use that as an explanation for the idea of the crisis apparition of someone who's just died and they're in the bed. But it's that kind of, your mind's registering an explosion of the energy of that person. If you take it a little bit deeper to into the quantum physics again and talk about the Planck scale, which is the lowest scale of measurement, there is no separation between energy and matter. Matter is just energy and it's one energy field complete and that's all that everything is reality ultimate the deeper devil is that so if you've got these kind of things occurring and there's a vibration through that energy field and you're picking it up it doesn't matter where you are how far away you are you can pick up that connection and yeah. it's something that your brain then interprets into something that makes some kind of sense to you whether it's a, a, a dream moment or it's a figure at the end of the bed or just the sense of knowing someone's passed away even if there's no specific imagery mentally dream or seeing it's a sense of something's happened you can feel i mean it could be just pure coincidence this happened for me many years ago with my um my wife's older brother's wife that was this third marriage actually um sitting sitting in the bathroom on Saturday morning and we were going out that evening and the phone rang and i just got this feeling that um terrible thought my name no, linda linda had passed away just out of the blue literally out of the blue and yes, it was her brother and Linda had passed away. She had a brain hemorrhage. No, I didn't know her that well. We talked a few times and she found the ghost stuff quite interesting. And just out of the blue, I just knew it was her. I had no idea why to this day. I couldn't tell you why. It was about a few years back. But it just, I knew she died. I mean, maybe because we were to see him that evening. So we were going to a family party, which obviously then was called off. But it was literally just out of the blue. Just the thought occurred to me. And I say this is an early afternoon. We were sitting in the bath, mm-hmm. keeping out with the kids, or her grandkids, to McDonald's. And she'd collapsed and she'd died there and then, basically, brain hemorrhage. But just out of the blue, it just something happened. Linda Linda died. Wow. Um, it was, now, one bit I did miss, it was Mandy's brother on the phone. But why would he just okay. think it was? His wife just died. But it was. That's what yeah. it was. So that's my only personal example. Now, yeah. to be perfectly honest, you, during the summer, we've had a, a lockdown in the UK because of, you know what, um, an aunt that was very close to my dad's um, sister passed away. I mean, she was had been ill. It wasn't just because of COVID. She actually had a heart attack and she had a fortune. In her 80s, in a pretty poor way. But, you know, I'm probably one of the closest people in my life. But I didn't have anything. There was no kind of apparition. There was no kind of thought or realisation or knowledge. The phone rang half past ten at night. My mum was ringing, which would be a very strange time for it to ring. So I kind of knew straight away what it was going to be. But it wasn't psychic. It was like two and two together. Yeah, yeah. That's really what it's about. So, you know, it's it can be random. You know, someone that didn't know that was my wife's brother's second wife. I get a connection. Aunt that Drake, is odd. Get no but- connection. You know, so I don't think you can necessarily, again, it's rationalise and logical, making this seem logical. It doesn't have to be. Who comes to you could be just random, just a, a meeting of frequencies for a few moments. Maybe trauma causes our, us 
me work on the language of this because it's more picture in my mind at the moment, but like it shifts us in, in a way that we are more aware of Planck's wall. Mm-hmm. That we can sense that we can are more able to sense the boundary. So when people cross it, we feel it. Well, I suppose to think about it, what I'm saying here is there is no boundary at all. There isn't a boundary. There's no right. The, the idea that the, a, a fragment of consciousness, which is still part of the field of consciousness, is a focal point of consciousness yeah. and expands for a moment. Yeah. A large energy explosion. People might be the right frequency to pick up on or might not. Yeah. But again, I mean, that kind of explains why, again, if you want to talk about ghosts, how you see ghosts of recent things. You don't see ghosts of dinosaurs. There's been a funny discussion over here, a little bit with some friends. Because it's like these things fade over time. If they're not fed into by us, by our experiences of them, they fade by themselves like a fire that no longer has flame but has heat. Yeah. Blowing embers, but eventually even the embers die out. And that may be what happens with us. It's a, a gradual unwinding process. Even, you know, we're constantly going as a lie, but then there's a, an unwinding process once someone actually dies. So there's still interference in the field of where they were, if you like, but it begins to fade in time. I mean, that made sense for me when it comes to things like ghost investigations, where you get stuff that you might have a building that was built in the 1600s, but the apparitions seem to be more Victorian dressed than the 1800s. That's not old enough, that the older things with that interaction just fade away. I think that makes sense. I, I also think the um, disruptions in the electrical network is probably how the Psychic Friends network works. Yes. 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 Um, that we have going. You should we, explain that. I'm going to. <laughs> not not the not the not Dion Warwick's psychic friends network. Um, we just call it that. So me and mom and Aunt Kendra and honestly almost all of our friends and family who know any who see odd things or have odd things happen we all know extremely reliably when something's up with somebody else. Like you get the, I need to call Kendra and you call Kendra and some shit is happening. Yeah. Or suddenly you'll be thinking about another one of your friends and all of a sudden they call you or you'll be feeling crappy or some huge thing has happened. And all of a sudden people are checking on you out of nowhere um, I think the best example of this would be our fourth member of our team, who's not my stepdad, um, Chris, who nobody's talked to yet. Um, he is one of my good friends, and he's a physicist. Um, and I had talked to him on the phone, and this is before we were doing the podcast. And then I put the phone down. I started you know, making dinner, and I got a sudden terrible feeling. And I was like, Chris is in trouble. And I called him. I'm like, are you okay? What's going on? And he's like, my apartment building's on fire. And I'm like, okay, do you have your go bag? And he's like, what's a go bag? I'm like, okay, grab your laptop, your wallet, any medication, your keys, and your cell phone and charger and get out of the house, Chris. (laughs) Okay. So the weirder part of it is is you know chris is standing in the street with everybody else in his apartment building while the fire trucks are getting there 
And he all of a sudden, like he had not asked this whole time. And all of a sudden he's like, why did you call me? We had just talked. And I was like, I, I knew you were in trouble. And he's like, how did you know? And I'm like, that's not important right now. I just know <laughs> things like that. I just know. I just know when people I love or am related to or am best friends with or in some way we're really good friends. I just know. I know when they're in trouble. And, you know, I'm, you're outside, your apartment isn't going to be like super on, is it super on fire? And he's like, no, it just seems to be this one, you know, corner and they're dealing with it. And that's what he said. He said, it's just a little on fire. I'm like, a little on fire is like a little pregnant, dude. It's not something. <laughs> yeah, he's with you. <laughs> Big on the clip might be, he's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and then my mom starts calling me on the other line and I'm like Chris I've got to go mom's calling me and in my head I'm like oh god what if something else is wrong and I just was too busy with Chris's bad thing signal and missed mom's and I'm like what is it mom and she's like something's wrong with Chris I'm like I know his apartment's on fire I'm on the phone with the mom it's just line. a little fire <laughs> and she freaks out she's like oh my god and it, like it's just a little bit on fire and she's like it's what and a similar thing happened with the tornado that was, you know, a block away from him. Was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We both we got all, that too. It, Kendra did too. Yeah. We yeah. all were like, oh, that shit. one I picked up. And we were that like, Chris, are you okay? Those sort of things would generate a lot of energy. Storm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Vibrations. I mean, animals often sense them long before we do. So, yes. The only thing I would say as another site is how many times have you called somebody and there's no, not been a problem? Um, I don't like just for just calling them out of the blue because I felt like talking to them. Um, I don't know. I would say it's kind of 50 50. Mm. So, the, the trouble is again, put my professional yes. cognitive bias where we oh, yeah, no, I'm sure there's a reliability of it. Yeah, I've phoned about five times the last couple of years and there's been a real problem, but there's 15 times the phone's fuck all over That's the yeah. problem, you know. Um, yeah. 15 times you've run and there's been a problem five times there wasn't then yeah. you're looking at something. that's that's the thing is most of the time if i go i should call this person because i haven't talked to them in a while nothing's wrong but if yeah. i call somebody because i have a bad feeling then usually something is up yeah, yeah. yeah get that balance that maybe oh, yeah. just we try not to magical <laughs> thinking too much yeah that, <laughs> well, that's the key term that's exactly that it's what you know what we all did as kids we think we're having a great influence on the world and we really are it's part of the way our brains develop it's, it's part of the psychology and it's one of the things that often causes problems in adult life as well where you think you're causing things to happen that actually are not but it can appear that way and that can cause problems sort of in terms of what I worked with with people but also you know there is something there sometimes that you are causing things to happen I mean in my book I'm interested in magic and that seems to work how why and well who knows but it, it works you know there is no doubt in my mind I've seen far too many things over the years to know that magic as what we talk about being magic not not sort of conjuring magic but actual occult magic seems to work how why it's a matter of question, a matter of debate, but that it does, it's hard to deny when, I mean, it's always personal experience. I mean, you can't, you know, 
talk about other people's experiences and say that's definitely pretty. So anecdotal, it has to be your own experiences that really define whether it's real to you or not. I haven't said that. I've seen enough over the years to say, no, there's something to it. What it is, what we're manipulating, what energy is, and it does come back to the idea that I do think it's all the same stuff we're dealing with, whether it's UFOs, ghosts, magic, or whatever. It's the same stuff. But you are yeah. influenced to occur, so definitely. Yeah, magic definitely works. Um, I don't do it very often anymore because it definitely works. And, you know, I had that that one rousing success that turned out so badly. Mm. Somebody you- once asked me to interfere in her love life. Mm. What did we learn from practical magic? <laughs> Well, we learned necromancy is a bad thing. Ah, okay. Pretty much universally, not a good idea. Um, but yeah, asking the universe for a redheaded Scotsman to appear and meet my friend didn't turn out so well. It lasted for what, six months, I think? I think about that. Yeah, and then it just exploded just dramatically. You know, because I I crafted it very carefully. I crafted the intention that it not be anything other than they meet. And then, because that's what I told her. I said, I can get you to meet somebody, but everything else is up to you. I am not going to mess with anybody's will, will at all. You know, I'm not... I'm not playing that. I'm not messing with people's emotions. That's not cool. Um, and she said, no, I understand. That's I. That's why I asked you, because you're ethical. <laughs> I didn't want somebody to do something really creepy and horrible. And uh, that, w- that, went, that went so spectacularly badly. And she doesn't blame me for it either. She said, I asked you to. And I was like, well, okay good because but you know i got a call from scotland over christmas one year um and uh morgana was sitting next to me on the couch and i'm talking to my friend and she's like oh oh no (laughs) i got off the phone and i was like yeah she went back to see him for christmas and they broke up and yeah maybe that was that wasn't so good but essentially she was in a pub and it wasn't his regular place. He was walking back from the shipyard where he worked and walked in. Six foot tall, flaming red hair. He looked over. She's almost six feet tall with flaming red hair. They saw each other. Boom. <laughs> so I did my part of the bargain. I, <laughs> I, you know, maybe I should have asked that he have fewer entanglements, but... <laughs> He had some entanglements. <laughs> well, I actually can tell you the story of someone I know who basically, cut a long story short, wanted to have more time to work with ritual magic and that sort of stuff. Wanted to get more involved. He had worked very long hours in what he was doing and wanted to change his dynamics of work so he'd be able to practice more magic. Within six weeks of that, he had a severe accident at work, fell off a ladder, broke his back, was in a wheelchair. So yep. he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't work. Yeah. That's well, that walk. You gotta ask so carefully. Exactly. You are skeletic spirits for that kind of thing. If you're not very, very precise, what you want to happen. Oh my goodness. Leave that door open. That's the that's the danger. That's the I mean, 
talk about one bit more with magic. Generally speaking, if you don't do it properly, nothing happens. Yes. Just occasionally, really bad things happen if you're not very careful. No, that goes down the lines of this rule of three nonsense of returning rubbish that you get from wicked stuff. I'm talking about real proper occult magic. Yes. You have to be precise. Yes. Most of the times, nothing works. But sometimes, things go very wrong. You get exactly what you need. I mean, but not the way, way you wanted it. Exactly. <laughs> it's like picking up your mobile phone. You want to ring up and you dial random numbers. And of course, nothing happens with random numbers as the wrong person. It's nonsense. Or you don't put enough numbers in, nothing happens at all. But just occasionally, you put a random number in and you get a complete nutcase on the phone. You then know you're on phone number. I'm just going to stalk you because you've got your phone number now. That's <laughs> yeah. Rare. Yeah. We talk about lots of numbers, but it can happen. You're not yep. very, very careful. He wasn't. I'm say he was in a wheelchair. Man. Oh, it's an absolute true story. Unfortunately, I, I've seen I've seen magical backlash happen, and yeah, it was it was pretty spectacular. And that's okay. He was he was trying to curse somebody, so <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. Do that, and that can work. But you have to be very careful what you're doing. Yeah, and yeah. And all yeah. the magic itself is completely neutral. It's what you do with it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's shaped by will and intent. Absolutely. And you need to have a strong will and you need to be mm. very specific with yeah. one's have, intent. Have, yes. And not have yeah. any relationship with the trickster. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, you too. That's why I don't. That's why I don't. <laughs> That's why I don't ask for things. I'm like, uh-uh. Yeah, no, don't. Just don't ask for things. Mm -mm. Don't pray for things. <laughs> don't ask yeah. for things. Just don't. Mm -mm. That's that's why I liked your recent blog post. Just live a good life. <laughs> help people as much as you can. Help help the animals as much as you can. And sometimes magic will happen, and that's okay. But. I, don't don't you, be don't be messing in things. Yeah. <laughs> More things in this earth can be solved with the practical application of empathy and advice and physical aid and community and comfort than you ever need to have. You, you can't no, just don't touch it. Absolutely. And it's not that I don't believe in magic, and it's not that I don't believe in gods, and it's not that I don't believe in spirits. I believe in all of these things, although I'm using spirits in the Native American sense of spirits as an animism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily ghosts, although it's not that I don't believe in ghosts. I just don't know what ghosts are, and I don't like saying what ghosts exactly. are. Exactly. That's it's one of those questions someone might ask me, do you believe in ghosts? I'll say, well, define what a ghost is first, then I'll tell you if I believe you or not, if I believe in that or not. Because I think there are imprints that people leave of energy or psychic imprints. I also think that there have been enough people who have seen dead relatives that I'm not going to tell them that's not their dead relative. Because for all I know, that is their dead relative. Or something's manifesting as the dead or relative. Something's or something's yeah. Not that it's a demon trying to pretend to be somebody else. There is just amorphous energy that's taking on a mm -hmm. form. You are giving it. And yep. I think that is the explanation for most of these phenomena. That's why we see different people can see the same thing and see something different in that thing they're observing. 
And again, an actual ghost investigation is people describe seeing a phenomenon. Two people see the phenomenon, describe it differently. Both genuinely coming from what they believe they've seen, but from their own different interpretations of background, they see it differently. These forms change depending on what you... It's fundamental, I believe, that these things are amorphous. They're there, they're real, but they have no identity themselves. It's just what you overlay onto them. And enough people do it enough times, it becomes that thing. But still, yes. it's still its own form. And yes. that form itself can be something as pure as light, as we talked previously. The light, intelligent light form could be the pure energy that we're talking about here that then takes on different forms within your belief system. And I think that's likely, that is heavily likely that that is the purest expression of whatever that is, is the little light forms or just blobs that then we cloak. I also, and this is me being exceedingly superstitious, um, I think part of why we invented magic and religion and superstition honestly is because if you can give it a face and a name you can trap it yeah you can control it. of behaviors mm -hmm. that then you can deal with this otherness in a way yeah so you know it's a way of quantifying it yeah you, you quantify it and if you can quantify something and if you know what it is, it's much less frightening. And yeah, if it's going to be meddling in your life, if you have like the fairy rules, the old hospitality rules, you know, give, leave the cream out, nothing bad will happen to you. And they might even help clean your house or, you know, at least not ride destroy your house yeah destroy your house fire. ride your cattle and horses until they're exhausted and then leave them filled with knots but you know if you leave them things out then bad things don't happen to you if you don't do this bad things will there's like a, a sense of give and take that's mm. the the binding rules to to that it gives it structure and rules and ways to cope with each other We've been doing that particular practice over generations that the energy will grow an expectation of that because it's been repeatedly imprinted over yeah. generations that that's what it is. It will respond accordingly. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. will work. Those kind of things will definitely work. It is, um, I was going to say, that's going to be gone on my head. It's faded away into the ether of midnight in, in the UK. Where I was going to say, no, <laughs> it's gone out of my head. Sorry. <laughs> gone <laughs> but th that's why you're not supposed to use the the f word you're not supposed to call them by name because that old belief that if you name something you take something from it and you have power over it so that's why you always have to use the epithets the good people the other crowd the good neighbors the good folk and of course you try to put good in front of it to kind of give them the idea that they are good so they maybe won't be like the unappeasable host and they're trying to uh, manipulate them uh-huh yeah <laughs> yep absolutely and the that's of names having power is very very old it goes back to some mm -hmm. times it's, it's, it's in the bible of course the old testament bits come from somewhere in babylonia so i notion of naming gives you power over things, you know, ancient approach, which is why we tend to still think it works because it's been around for a long time. We may have enabled it to work because we believe it's so long it does work, you know. If yeah. you're dealing with these things that don't have a form, 
If they're repeatedly being imprinted over and over again, this is the form you're going to have, then they're responding kind, and it does appear to have an effect. But I still would say take it down to the purest core, then you're dealing with just your energies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's likely. Um, and that's that's one of the things Keel also talked about was, you know, what form do these things have? Who knows? And that's where he came up with this whole ultra-terrestrial. They're not... That you know they're from here. They they exist here. If they're from somewhere else, it's probably something closer to here than we think about. You know, but they sh- certainly seem to want us to think they're from space now. That yeah. seems to be their thing that they want us to believe for whatever reason. Um, and that I find that fascinating. That you know they may have the identity that we have forced upon them since the nineteen forties. Yeah. You know, one of the things the new book I'm working on now is almost one parallels with my the book I mentioned before, Wicked Truly Caves, is, you know, it's a collection of genuine spells from sort of Victorian Britain and earlier, real spells that were actually used by the country folk. When I was researching that, I came across a lot of stories of strange encounters that, you know, you talk about the fairy, we'll use the word, and those kind of beings and entities, but some of them just didn't even fit into those categories. They were just weird strange stuff that kind of fits in with this notion of this being an, an otherness around us that occasionally manifests and you see. I mean, two stories in particular that jumped out in early research for this, both come from um, North Scotland, the islands of or in Scotland. The islands, oh, I can't even go now, but it's a very small island with two descriptions of sightings of these small grey beings. Now, one sighting described has been a, a woman with small grey skin who seemed to be talking about moving her lips, but talking a language no one understood. These kids basically watched her walk by. Another story of two fishermen who observed two young boys, again with grey skin, seeming to teleport a cow off a cliff and mm. then returned on the cliff. I've heard that one. I don't know where, but I've heard that one. The, yeah. Actually, the, both of those. That's, yeah. It's in a book, and I'll just grab the title. It was on my screen a moment ago, and of course, as soon as I do that, I accidentally close it and can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not but, meant to tell us. <laughs> no, it's secret. The name of the book, book gets out of my head. But yeah, it was. It's one I've come across early on in my sort of researches into the next book I'm working on. And the idea is, it's not. I'm going to talk about the parallels between the others and the ultra terrestrials as being a potential explanation of these strange creatures and phenomena. But yeah, I mean, that was just two examples. There was no description of lights in the sky, no spaceships landing. They just appeared and disappeared again. You know, commonly with more older stories like this, if they come from anywhere, it's underground. They come yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. From hills, etc. So, you know, what we're seeing is hills in Victorian times and now seen as spaceships in modern times. I do think there's something there because you thought about There's the, the dome. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I always dome. thought that was... I always, you know, I felt sort of disincluded at, when I realized, you know, what I saw, what I experienced from childhood on, I always took it as, as fairies. They didn't act like space people. I did yeah. see a daylight UFO once. It wasn't that other people in my family didn't see or experience UFOs. They did. And all of that. But my brain, for whatever reason, possibly because I was read fairy poems and fairy lore from a very early age, formed in that way. 
Yeah. Like, you know, I always think of our brains as kind of like wardrobes and we have costumes that they can wear in there and they, they sort of rummage in there. They, they get their little, you know, fingers in there and, and find a good outfit and they pop it on for whoever they're, they're talking with. I, I don't know, but yeah, for whatever um, reason, most of the time it is manifested as beings of light that I took as fairies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always going to be in accordance with what is believed of the time of the people in the area. So, yeah, I mean, you can talk about being a wardrobe of ideas, but it's essentially what's in your head, what, what suits and fits with you. I mean, my first real ghost experience was not sort of creepy old house in the middle of the night. It was a sunny summer's afternoon. You know, the last kind of place you expect to see anything paranormal or supernatural, but yeah, yeah, absolutely was. I'll just briefly tell you the story. I mean, I've talked about the story before, you may have caught me on other shows when I've been on, but basically, um, not far from where I live, there's a country park, and in the park there's a place called Coal House Fort. Now, it's a fort that was built in the Napoleonic times, originally in the early 1800s, because it's on the Thames estuary, so obviously washing out for invading forces. Built then, it was built up more in the First World War, because it was washing the Zeppelins coming over and had gun emplacements on it, and then bigger still for the Second World War. And it's been there, to say, for quite a long time. But by the late 70s, it was dilapidated. It was completely fenced off. You weren't supposed to be able to get into because part of it was metal and was basically falling apart. It was quite dangerous. But there were plenty of big gaps in the fence, and kids could easily get into it. Now, the fort itself is circular. It's got little buildings around the outside, and there's a big courtyard in the middle. And a few of us were in there just playing football. You guys call soccer, kicking the ball about. And I was, didn't know the kids that was there. We just a group of us had gone in there. And I was watching for the ball coming towards me, and I looked up, and two men walked past me. Now, they were no more than about 10, 15 feet away from me. I saw them for a good two or three seconds and looked down, came for one, and thought, hang on a minute, look back again. I mean, I was about 11, 12 years old at this point, and there was no sign of them. They'd just gone. Now, they were both dressed in uniform, military uniform. Much later on, I found out it was from the First World War because they had like a webbing around the lower half of the legs below the knees, which is a World War I uniform, and people dressed that way were stationed at the fort. But I was 12 years old, I didn't know any of that at the time. But there was real as anything. I mean, they were completely silent. There was no sound from them, but there was real as people walking past me. And it was, I say, for the first second or two, it didn't even register that it didn't make sense. It was only half of them, and they were gone. I didn't ask anybody else because I didn't know the other kids, but as far as I could tell, nobody else saw them. It was just me. And they just walked past as plain as anything. Now, you know, that's a kind of ghost encounter. But yes, I say they just look physically normal and real people. And it was a sunny afternoon in that summer. There was nothing ghostly. There was no mist. There was nothing. It was a bright, sunny day. Yet there they were, walked past me in about, say, I was no more than 11, 12 years old. And it really was kind of, what? Was that? And being a kid, I kind of forgot about it for years, but it was always in the back of my mind. What was that all about? But never really, until I got into my teens, started reading ghost books and things like that. Oh, hello, this is what I've seen. My path has always been more supernatural rather than extraterrestrial. So all my experiences have always been more, shall we say, ghostly rather than anything else. But again, it's because it's been my interest in all those times. I've never been that into nuts and bolts UFOs until I started reading things like John Keel and I thought there's another way of looking at this. Mm-hmm. And it started to think, well, maybe that's what a ghost is as well. It's a manifestation of this thing. And that's where I've got to now in my own thinking. That's what I'm going to try and explore further in the next book I'm working on. Well, the next book one, because I've got one I've got to finish before I do this one. <laughs> yeah. So, 
a whole catalogue of things I work out at the moment. Nice. I'm yeah. sorry, my brain just died, so I was I was wondering if what you saw was a, a manifestation of a time slip or jump or hiccup would, or burp. That would make <laughs> more sense, you know, though people say that time slips is more beyond, but it's one come back to say this. Why would the standard ghost explanation be okay and anything like a time slip not be be less okay? Why is that more weird, you know? But I do think there's some kind of momentary window in time. I mean, there's a very famous story of two men in Versailles, basically saw it in the past, has been written about many times. It's entirely possible that is what happened. Somehow the brain connected with that concept of an imprint of an event of the past is literally just repaying itself in front of me, or it was, I was literally seeing what happened at some point during the First World War, these two men were stationed there. And you got to wonder if those guys were like, you see a kid with a soccer ball? I'll tell you an absolute true story from a good friend of mine. Exactly the same thing happened to him. He's a researcher. I call him John. He's maybe John, but we call him John. Um, up in one of the libraries in London, I was looking for some particular information. I'm cutting sorry down a little bit, so it's quite long. But he was basically in the section of the library that wasn't used very often. We were working with an old book. And sitting at a desk, reading the book, looked up, and a man basically in Victorian-style clothing came out from the side of the bookcases, looked at him very strangely, and my friend looked at the bloke, and the bloke walked past, past the bookcase and was gone. They saw each other. There's no, he said, there's no doubt about it. He saw me and I saw him. And he gave me this strange, because of course he's dressed in modern clothing. Looking yeah. It's both, he said, there's no doubt in my mind, we saw each other. And yet, That's he so cool. completely he went behind the bookcase and was gone. <laughs> So they saw each other. There's no doubt about it. As far as my friend John, I mean, I've talked to John many times about it. It was a remarkable experience. And he said, no, absolutely. The way the guy looked at me, there's no way he couldn't have seen me. And there's no way he belonged in that library. He looked completely wrong. And I was in a quiet section. There was no one else around in the immediate vicinity. And yet there he was. And there I was looking <laughs> at each other. And it was an old building. You know, it's been a library for centuries, easily. So, so Grant not- Wilson from TAPS told a story one time I attended one of the things they had at the library and he talked about one time when they interacted with the past and it was, it was a, was it Queen Victoria or somebody like that where she, he was walking up the hall. She turned around and he saw her. She turns around and says, excuse me. And then turns around and keeps walking. And they're like, what was that? Wow. <laughs> and he's like, I always kind of wonder if maybe she jotted that down somewhere and there just happens yeah. to be some record. Because I always wonder about that. Yeah, there's a book called The Vertical Plane, which is basically all about that interaction between a guy from the 1600s and a, and a, a modern guy who bought his house. And there was a whole series of interactions that took part took initially on an old computer, an old BBC computer from what nice age this was, typing messages to each other. And then he started to see the guy, and the guy could see him. And the guy who he was talking to from the 1600s, so he was going to write a book about the experiences. Never found the book, unfortunately. The, the, the modern guy searched everywhere to see if this guy had written the book. He couldn't actually find him at all, much less the book. But it is fascinating. I mean, they did do some writing analysis on the writing from the guy from 1600 and said the structure and grammar are very similar to the modern guy. So it could be made up or just a bit bonkers. <laughs> you know, or it could be because he was so fascinating. It that is cool. It's filtered through his consciousness. So therefore, it's 
altered by the modern man's consciousness. It changed its nature, but it's still coming from the guy in the 1600s. Right. Yeah, Ken Webster, The Vertical Plane, it's worth digging out if you can find it. I might, I might probably read it. Suddenly we're all taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was ready this time with a pen and paper because yeah. every time we interview people, somebody says there's a book we need. <laughs> I had at least one, <laughs> usually more. Or Which is fine. Know, I'll send you three copies of it. Yes, you will. If <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get him for an interview a few years ago, I used to be on a radio show here in the UK as a co-host of, and I couldn't track him down, unfortunately. I don't know what's happened to the other. I mean, he was fairly young, so I can't imagine he's passed on. may have done. But I really wanted to find King Webster to talk to him, but couldn't, unfortunately. If you can try his old publishers, they've no idea he's gone. Hmm. Interesting. Awful. I do wonder why why occasionally researchers pop in and out that quickly. Mm. Because it does seem to happen. And I can think of several perfectly mundane explanations. Like, okay, this is weird. Or, okay, my book didn't do well. Or, or okay, I suddenly got a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Yeah. Or, this the is crazies really have found me and oh, now the they crazies won't leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. They made eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> you make eye contact, it's your responsibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but You're not supposed to wonder. Look. Sometimes yeah. I do wonder. Well, you know, Keel Keel went a little wacky at, in points. You can tell by the yeah. way his writing changed. He started using the third person royal we business. That was a little mm. Mm. Now, I think some of what he was talking about with the royal we was actually he was talking about himself and some other researchers he was corresponding with through his newsletter, which I now have uh, PDFs of all of it. So I've been, you know, digging through and yeah. and looking at it. And I think some of the royal we comes from that. But it, it was been nice if he'd explained that. <laughs> it's John Keel. He's not going to explain diddly squat i swear he, i swear he put he he made terrible indices so that as you said morgana he, you know he's in the beyond now and he can laugh at us every time we're like damn it keel why is this index so crappy ah oh my god just drives me completely nuts so you can't find the references to things oh god <laughs> we never got reference where it's come from that's that's why I when I heard from Josh Kutchin that he was working on the index for the second volume of Where the Footprints End, he you know it took him days and days. I'm like, thank you, mm -hmm. we love thank you. you so much. We love your index in your first volume. <laughs> he said, "There's." He said, "I was talking with you know another writer, and he was like, index. Why are you doing that? You're spending how long?" <laughs> oh my god. I was like, I don't like that person. <laughs> he is not my friend. <laughs> oh, these days, if you've got the book as a word format document, you can actually make the index very, very easily. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. He finds them all for you. He just notes yeah. the numbers down. Yeah. Yeah, I must confess that the book of mine that you've got, I didn't do the index to my own public. You put the index in there. It wasn't me. <laughs> so <laughs> credit bad, we won't call you and judge. Or if it's really good, we'll, we'll not. Thank you. We'll find the nice man or woman who made it. Okay. Well, you know, I think we've been talking for about an hour and 48 minutes. I've been trying to keep track, but, you know, with Mr. Computer going, oh, you don't need to be 
on the internet anymore. I'm not quite sure, but I think we have been. So is there anything else anybody would like to bring up before we, we sort of close off our, our conversation and I have nothing quick. Well, okay. Mentioned I have a new book out that came out last week. Yes. 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 Please. Um, same publisher as the Wiki Show Decay, which is with Three Hands Press. My new book is only a short book. It's part of a monograph series that they're publishing under this um, kind of period. Um, it's on Dante's Inferno. Oh, the, yes. The occult awesome. of Dante's Inferno. I've absolutely been obsessed with the Inferno since I read it as a teenager. Give me nightmares, but I loved it. <laughs> and the opportunity to write, because there's lots of elements that have occult significance, way beyond what Dante intended. There's no way he did any of it, but you can see there's kind of warnings and things to be careful of and how to follow the path and what the kind of stuff's going on. It's relatively short. It's only about 50-odd pages of these early monographs. They're quite short. But it, I wrote it during the UK lockdown had during um, spring and summer this year and it came out literally last week from Three Hands Press and as I say it's I've never written so fast in my life which <laughs> 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 is amazing for me it's a couple of years at least but yeah it's um I say it's called the underground gnosis it's an exploration of the occult elements of Dante's Inferno. Well, tell you what well I'll get three copies to Kendra uh because you know that's how many that's copies I do. send her I don't know how that happens or why. I keep but... having the same book. I'm like, oh, look, this book again. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll send I'll send copies to everybody. We'll read it and then we'll call you back up. Yeah, so we'll talk about, about it. You're all night. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm just happy there's somebody else who read it in high school. And uh -huh. oh yeah. My, no, my, I think it was British lit. It wasn't forced on me. I chose to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't forced on me either. I read that and uh, Milton, Paradise Lost, the oh, same year. Yeah. And the student teacher was like, you're reading that on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he yeah. was like, you like it? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, oh. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. He's like, no, don't be sorry. <laughs> Well, at last count, I have about 35 different editions, different translators of it. Nice. So, uh, That's amazing. Do you have the Dorothy Sayers one? Do you have the Dorothy Sayers one? Oh, yes. I'm absolutely certain I have, yeah. Okay. I was just wondering. She's one of my, my favorite authors, and I've always been meaning to get a hold of her translation of it. But then it falls further down on my radar because I... It's, I have a podcast that I do now. So now it's like, okay, I have to read this other book for this other thing. And also this one for this and this. And I'm always assigning reading. You do. Stuff. You keep she going. Is. You need to read this. And then she buys it for me on my Kindle. And so I have no excuse. <laughs> exactly. And then she's like, we're going to do a podcast on something completely unrelated. Read up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teaching third grade science. You're killing me. And great math. Everything's virtual. I am the teacher. And I'm like, I'm just trying to read about this other thing. Yeah. yeah you learn about U-boats. <laughs> or cattle mutilation. That's your other thing. Yeah, I keep being distracted. Yeah. <laughs> but no, oh, well. I'm trying to read about U-boats in the Atlantic battle. <laughs> the battle of the Atlantic mother. Nice. <laughs> actually sounds interesting it's really interesting and i feel very very happy that the 
Nazis were terrible at strategy. Yeah. <laughs> they well, that, that's, that's everybody it. being on meth did not help. No. <laughs> no. And just constant fighting for narcissistic crazy dad's attention mm-hmm. instead of actually centralizing your military command. Like, thank God he was nuts and not yeah. good at things. It's the way in which the German military actually works. They are very ironly, rigidly follow the orders of their commanders. It's I remember a quote from I, I did history. Um basically any kind of um, order is basically written in stone. It's written in oh, yes. what yeah. it says that you have to follow exactly. it no matter what. Beyond and that was fine. Beyond American, we don't have that kind of ultra rigidness, even if it's absurd, they'll still do it because they've been told to do it. And that was part of the American the, the sorry the German makeup which allowed this lunacy to take place. Yes, and the other it that part is less of a problem. The big problem is is he made the different branches of the military play favorites. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at that and I go, what are you doing? Well, it it's... worked politically. That's how he did it politically as well. With made sure yeah. the coordinates were at each other's throats all the time. Therefore, they wouldn't exactly. be power. So you and played the same game. It, it, I, I get it. Dude's a nutcase and a narcissist and was not thinking... <sighs> was not a rational person. No, he <laughs> wasn't. If you're going to try and take over the world, you have to be somewhat rational. And I'm so glad he wasn't. I'm but so glad he, most people who have tried to do that have are not been rational. irrational. That's, yes. But it's I, I, I get But I, complex, actually, I mean, sort of going on for a second a little bit, there is a lot of debate as to what was really going on with him. He doesn't yeah. really fit any of the categorizations that we tend to have. I mean, I'm sorry to say, American psychotherapy psychology is more inclined to categorization than we are over here in the UK. We tend to be more mm-hmm. loose with that. But, we love our DSM. Yeah, exactly. We don't <laughs> tend to use that kind of scaling. I mean, some do, obviously. But he doesn't fit anything that you can define as being this is the X, Y, Z reasons. Many books have been written on it. Is the psychology of Hitler is fascinating because it's like, what is the drive? It's like something, almost like not a breakdown, a kind of weird breakup, if you like. This kind yeah. of well, and what's, it, and what's interesting to me is the difference between the, the um, character he cultivated, the persona he car- cultivated and the persona he was. There seems to be some argument oh. between the two where they'll say, oh, he spent all this time at the library when the people closest to him were like, yeah, no, he didn't. Mm, yeah, yeah. Common misnomer so, interested in the occult wasn't. Yeah, no, exactly. That, that was Himmler. that was him. Heinrich Himmler was very. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. Any of them? No, I mean Hitler used things like the runes. My one of my other recent books, which is the second edition, just come out. It talks about what called the Armenian runes, which have been associated with the Nazis completely erroneously. He was not interested. There were symbols that we could use for insignia and then use in the military, certainly, but there was no interest in anything beyond that. Him was the one who had an interest, but he was even more bonkers in many ways. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah he was... It's it's kind of like that. he was evil, unquestionably, but he had a bunch of opportunists around him that yeah. just... Yeah, put on him what they needed 
in order to fill, fill their ends. Yes. We had a collection of criteria that all met all at the same time. You had a collapsing economy, a belief that they shouldn't have lost the war, which they did because it was hidden from them what was really happening. The, the fact that Germany had always been a proud nation and to be utterly subjected by the Allies after the First World War, you were asking for trouble. You were setting up. You were either going to end up with ultra-right-wing lunacy or you're going to have ultra-left-wing communist lunacy, and it would have been lunacy as well. You were going to go one way or the other. There's no middle ground left because the middle ground was stripped. Nothing to stand on. Yeah. So sometime when you come to the States, you need to come over, uh, come down to New Orleans and go to the D-Day Museum. It is amazing. You could easily spend two solid days walking through the displays. to, And even still, it helps you wrap your head around the chaos soup that the entire world was to come to that place because you didn't just have uh, Germany, you, you had Japan who all of a sudden went, hey, I want to do a thing. And Italy's like, hey, I want to do a thing. Let's everybody do things. And then the Ottoman, it just everything. And Spain. It's, yes. Spain. Don't forget and Spain. Don't forget, forget yeah. <laughs> and then, And it just it breaks it down in such a way that you can manage each chunk of information as you go through the museum. It is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. You can also visit Normandy, the actual landing. Yes. Site. <laughs> I think Munich as well, the birthplace of the far of the film. Yeah. I know. I, I I had a moment of like, oh man, we're Americans trying to talk history at the the British man. <laughs> he lives where they keep the history. Yeah, you you yeah. have the history. Yeah, I'm sitting like, here going British War Museum. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the first places yeah. I'm going back to in London. I would love to British. Britain at all. I will take you, you when this is over. Come on. I live close to London. Let me know if you're over, guys. I'll give you a tour. Excellent. What? British Museum? Some of the strangest. All stuff. the museums in, in London. Museum? There's I so many know. museums in London, baby. Oh, you were right. there the first time. You just were in vitro hanging around and <laughs> you, you didn't get to see the things. You have to tell them about the Rosetta Stone. I touched the Rosetta Stone. I was a bad, bad girl. <laughs> nice. I was given the bad, bad look by the guard. <laughs> and I stayed at the Sutton Hoo burial until my her father dragged me away and was like, no, stop staring at that. It's boring. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not boring. It's yeah. Not boring. No, absolutely. I don't know if you remember many years ago, the TAPS TV show, what was it called? The Ghost Program, the Ghost Hunters Program. Do you remember they did an episode where they were in London? They went yes. To the Violet Tavern and somebody yes. took one of the Jack Ripper tour. Mm-hmm. Watch it closely. Ah. The tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my favorite episode of that isn't that one, although I did like it. I like the Irish one where oh. the, the native guide just checks out he's like uh no those aren't human and i'm not playing with that i'm i'm leaving <laughs> goodbye you can yeah. done now want to stay here in you the can Ford. stay here i'm done <laughs> i'm finished <laughs> i've met barry fitzgerald quite a few times he was the guy that took him over there and i said i've had him for years thank cool. you so much for coming thank to see you. us and thank you for all of your wisdom and thoughts and stories it was yeah. great to talk with you you guys enjoyed it. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us 
at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Until next time, keep your eyes on the skies. Salt across your doorstep. And don't talk to the poltergeist in the cupboard. Why not? Because talking to yourself is a sign of mental disturbance. But what if the poltergeist isn't a manifestation of your subconscious mind and repressed emotions? Then you shouldn't talk to him because he's rude throwing stuff around like that. Fair enough. Thank you.